Hello, and welcome to the TLT Scale Up Insights series of podcasts with me, Nina Searle, and my co-host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew and I are partners in the Fast Growth team here at TLT. We are a cross-jurisdictional UK team, helping rapidly scaling businesses to manage the legal challenges that come with growth. In each episode, we'll dive into key topics that you're going to be thinking about as you grow your business and what you really need to know from a legal perspective. We share our insights and advice on the issues that clients bring to us on a daily basis and discuss them with experts, both from inside and outside the firm, drawing on their experience and the advice that they have found most valuable. We aim to work with our clients throughout their journey, supporting them from scale to sale. So whatever your business goals, this series will give you the insights you need to help you stay on course and achieve them. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions about anything we discuss in the show, please do get in touch at scaleupinsights at tltsolicitors.com. Today we are joined by Dan Reed, who is a partner with the TLT Tech and IP team. And we're going to be talking about all those things that our clients, scale-up businesses like you, wish they had known at the beginning of their journey in relation to IP. A retrospective, if you like, looking at the things that you absolutely do need to know and have in place to make you future-proof. Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at TLT? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So yeah, Dan Reed, I'm a partner here and I've been at TLT for a number of years, but spent 15 years helping businesses of all sizes to build value in their IP and particularly in technology. So supporting organizations to understand how they're building their software, how they're licensing it, how they interact with their customers in order to try and help those businesses retain and create value in what they're doing. People spend a lot of time personally invested, particularly in the startup world. You know, they put their houses on the line for this stuff. So we spend a lot more time trying to help their businesses make sure they retain and protect that value. So Dan, when starting out, what key IP and commercial issues do you think that we need to be thinking about as a scale-up company? Well, I think it's really important to make sure that you actually understand what IP is, a good starting point. You know, there's a lot of misconception about what it actually is. It often gets lumped in with just general know-how or business activity or stuff that people don't actually understand, that there are very specific things that are intellectual property and things that aren't. So it's worth always remembering that it's not ideas themselves. You can't protect ideas. You can only just protect the expression of those ideas. So you need to get writing things down and you need to start thinking about making sure that you're prioritizing what's important to your particular business. So that's where I'd start. It's understanding what IP is a good place to start. There's loads of stuff on the internet. There's loads of stuff available through the IPO website. You do some research and actually try and put your finger on what actually is the intellectual property in your particular business. You mentioned they're writing it down as part of the process of identifying what it is, but obviously having written it down, you need to keep it safe and keep it confidential, don't you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's there's several steps that we try to go through to, to try and help early stage businesses understand what they've got and what the, what's important to them. So thinking just simply about what stuff do you actually generate in your, in your business? What do you think you might generate? You know, what actually is it going to be? What do you want to own? Like there are certain things that you might want to own as an organization and other things actually are not important. So we try and be specific about actually what is the real kind of IP kernel in your business that's going to really drive that change and drive that development for you. And do you actually need to own it? Maybe, maybe not. And also thinking about if you're commissioning others to do stuff for you, then don't just do that blindly. There are some kind of restrictions and rules around who owns the IP if you start actually instructing others to do that for you. So it's understanding all those kind of things all together. And as you say, then trying to make sure that you're putting some protections in place, whether that be documents, whether that's some practical things that you can do just to make sure that you're not giving other people those rights 
that then you come down the line and realize you actually don't own what you thought you owned. Dan, you mentioned the ability to go online and see some stuff on, on the internet. You mentioned the IPO website. Um, is this something that uh, scale-up companies could be looking at and try and get into order without needing to come and ask for you know, lawyers' help or other advisors' help? I think it's horses for courses. It's one of these things where you should, as a startup, you should go and soak up as much information as is out there. I mean, there's no harm in doing that. Go to all the events you possibly can. Try and get all the free help and free advice and guidance from people like us who go to events or to other people in the industry. Talk to other organizations, what they've done, you know, how they've responded to this. Think about if I'm in an accelerator or if I'm in an incubator, then you know, making sure I'm making available the resources that actually are available to you. There are some things on the internet, again, but try and find sources that are a bit more reputable. It's not just looking at Wikipedia and thinking, well, that said something about IP. Often because it's, it could be US orientated and US law is quite different in IP senses. So thinking about, okay, I'm going to go to the IPO government website, which tells me about all the different things, trademarks, patents, designs, and those are the kind of registered IP rights. So actually, there's a lot of information in there you can get. But I think it's just maximizing what is around you and taking kind of critical view about what's actually useful, but trying to get as much support from the things available. And there are certain things you should come to lawyers for, or we can help you. And often that really, of a little bit of investment in those things does deliver the better outcome in the future. And what sort of things are they, Dan? So those things are like... Um, we found particularly in trademark registrations, there is like a right start thing you can do with the IPO. So there's a, a pre-check that they can do for you to see whether you can get your trademark registered. It's quite a good option, although it's quite easy to get it wrong and mess it up or to do that incorrectly the first off. And then you're down a track where actually you've had to spend more money. And then it comes to us later on and we realize that they didn't register it in the right classes or they didn't get it in the right way. And actually that doesn't fit with the business that they want to now operate. And so... Sometimes spending a little bit of money, and it could be 750 quid, it doesn't have to be thousands and tens of thousands of pounds. It's about spending a little bit of money. We can help do clearance searches and just sort of putting some protections in place early on means that you're slightly well better protected later. I think also that there's an assumption that lawyers are going to be really expensive and they're going to try and charge you lots of money for doing little stuff, but it's partly that relationship with the startup business to actually help tease out what's really important. We find that people get caught up in trademarks, for example, and brand, and it's all got to be you know, looking nice and actually realize they're doing a B2B you know, business to business offering where actually brand and positioning as an initial activity is not the most important thing. But you might find other people where actually it's a consumer orientated service or product and they don't necessarily think about checking whether other people are using a similar name or you know, even just Googling it and working out has another company got the same sort of stuff that I'm trying to do? And that can cause real problems later on because you suddenly have to rebrand your service offering. Often when you get to a point where it has more scale and actually then has some value for an investor or for the company, then it's really hard and very expensive to have to go and unwind all that stuff. And if it's a consumer-orientated service, that those things are difficult to do and actually just to lose a lot of traction and lose a lot of consumer input because you've not thought about it early on so it's getting the balance and i think it's coming back to prioritization about what's really really important so sitting down thinking about okay what is really important in this startup what is it going to differentiate from others and what is actually going to make me the best in this particular segment or area i want to be in yeah 
I've seen that uh, with sort of early start companies that who have focused heavily on brand, then launched their products, and on on launching it, find that uh, large companies have come in and claimed that there's been infringement there. And I suppose there is that risk that if you if you go to market too quickly and haven't done the searches that you mentioned, that you can end up falling foul of someone with very deep pockets who's prepared to uh, fight hard to. Uh, you know, for any perceived brand infringement that they'll try and enforce that. And for an early stage company to then have to push money towards fighting a litigation as opposed to doing it, you know, applying it in the way in which they had intended to can make quite a hit. I suppose from your perspective then, Dan, any real pitfalls that you've experienced that you've uh, where this has maybe gone wrong? Yeah, similar kind of thing where I've had organizations who have kind of gone down a quite a long track particularly in the trademark or branding space, and they've kind of got to the point of launch. And then they we sort of say to them, well, have you thought about who else is in the market or who else is doing this sort of stuff? And I'm not sure, but we've spent ages working out the right name. And actually, we do a quick search on the trademark registry and realize that there's another one in a similar kind of area that means they couldn't even register it if they wanted to. So there's, again, it's just a bit of fore planning is often helpful. But also, I think, from a future investor point of view, they want to make sure that they've that all those sorts of things are solved as early as possible. So there are some other pitfalls that people get into by not doing that kind of planning early on, whether that be they've instructed someone else to build something for them in software, for example, haven't got a contract. That in law doesn't mean that just because I've paid for it doesn't mean that I own it. So that person who built it for you actually retains the IP unless you've got a clause somewhere that says it's going to be transferred. People often forget that, you know, they'll just say, oh, can I get you know, even if it's not a contractor, but can I get a friend to sort of build the first MVP product? Yes, you can, but they might actually retain the IP and then you forget about it. And, you know, that gets overtaken by other development and all that sort of stuff. And then the investor comes in later on and goes, right, so where's the IP? Where's actually, what's the thing? Where's the value that I'm buying? And we won't be able to point to a document or evidence to say, yes, we do own it. And that immediately puts you know the frighteners on, on investors in that sense. So, Again, so these sort of early planning tasks are really important and they're not very difficult. It's just sitting down and spending the time to think, what is actually that I, I'm building? What do I own? What am I going to do with it? And who's been doing it for me? I think that's right. And, and as you say, getting it right at the beginning is always going to be best. But most of those things can be fixed with retrospective agreements as you go along the journey. But the downfall of that is that you might have lost contact with the people who were involved, or they might identify that there's actually some value and that they've got a bit of a negotiating position. So whilst legally, we can sort of retrospectively address all of the IP ownership and get it in the right place, that does rely on the other parties being willing to cooperate. And I think it also, you know, any investor doesn't want to see wet ink on a document, they want to see that the company's been well managed and well run, that you know where your value sits and that you're looking after it because yeah. they want you to look after their money too. So I think what you said about, you know, frightening off investors, I think we have seen investors proceed where everything's been put put back in the right place, but they want to see that happening ahead of any investment. Yeah, we've seen it where where people have been kind of held to ransom on particularly in software where you've kind of instructed someone else to do it and then their friend has done some other things or then you've gone out to a you know another company maybe to do some contractor development work for you and actually then as you say lost contact with those people lost relationship or the relationship has soured you know it's not been they've not been paid or we've seen circumstances where actually then that can be a real barrier to kind of future growth because it just leaves that mess that and people don't like investing in sort of things that are messy because it's too hard to have to unwind it so it's 
And like those things can be really simple in my experience. It doesn't have to think, oh, I've got to have a 30-page contract just to cover these things. At the simplest level, having a piece of paper that is written to say, you will do this work for me. And when you've done it, I will pay you this. And any intellectual property you generate, you will transfer, you will assign to me. That could be it. That's kind of enough almost at a really basic level. It doesn't have to be some major thing just to have some evidence of it. And you can go around and fix the kind of legal bits or make it look a bit prettier for you know, for that sort of investor readiness side of things. But at least you have something to point to and some basic things about you know just knowing where it is. Even practicalities of knowing like where the code is, for example, if someone's building it for you, getting them to put it into a repository that you have control of, making sure there's some confidentiality around it so that they can't go off and do things. But even basic things, you know, don't giving it, we find people will have a tendency to kind of be quite generous with their stuff at early stage and quite open with all the things that they're developing or building or wanting to do. And that can cause problems in itself because you've sort of given everyone all the ideas that you've got. And as I say, there's no protection in ideas. So sometimes just saying, being a bit cautious about how much information you give to others can be helpful because you're sort of saying, well, I'm going to give you this piece, but I'm not going to give you all of the whole map of my business because actually it's easy for someone to go and replicate it. I think that's a key point. And you know, as corporate lawyers, we often look at things from an investment perspective, but actually thinking more about trading relationships. One of the things that we often see is you know, young and scaling companies are so keen to impress potential customers or other parties that they're going to need to collaborate with that they overshare. They tell their potential customers how they're going to achieve the end results. And it's getting that balance, isn't it, between giving them enough information that they believe it, that it's a credible claim yeah. that you've got without just telling them how to do it so that actually they've got deeper pockets. They could just recruit somebody to go and do yeah, it themselves. Yeah. And we were doing it the other day for a, a small company, a couple of people came up with some really, really clever technology, but talking to a massive multinational global corporate organization. And we often talk to people about that saying, actually, that's a really good of, way of getting some scale. You know, this corporate was going to be a, a really good Will hopefully will be a good sales channel, a good distribution partner, a good supporter. It's a good brand to be associated with all those kind of good things. But the project was going to start with a load of workshops where the intention of the startup was to sort of share as much as it possibly could, try and glean as much information as it possibly could, but at the same time kind of give over everything that it had and send over them access to all their systems or whatever that would be. And we've kind of sort of cautioned them against a bit of that because the reality is even however nice you think this is going to be and however nice the people you're working with is, there is always that risk that if I've got massive deep pockets and an R&D budget of billions, then I don't need to worry about actually stealing stuff potentially. I just have to pick up a bit of idea, replicate it, and I can go off and then you're never going to be able to sue them or have the capability to do that. So it's, as you say, it's that balance between giving enough information to give yourself credibility and to encourage people to think that you're viable without sort of giving over the crown jewels and letting someone just take it out of the market. Because even if you had all the perfect IP protection in the world, as I say, that, that sort of the fundamental is that you can't stop people creating same ideas. Thinking about the sharing of ideas and sharing of information, Dan, one of the key queries that always comes up for fast growth companies is to do with approach to NDAs, to non-disclosure agreements, yeah. confidentiality agreements. Have you any views on that? Are these things that they should have in place? Should they be ready to go with those or are they not worth the paper that they're written on? There's two, well, two schools of thought generally that for a startup to provide one, it looks like you've thought about it. It looks like you're serious about it. It can put the kind of 
puts front and center to people's minds that they need to be cautious of what they're doing and they are under some personal potential legal obligations or corporate legal obligations that if it did go wrong, then they could be sued. The reality of the actual legal position is that I don't think I've seen very many confidentiality arrangements ever sued under or people actually ever actually kind of enforcing it or that sort of stuff. So the reality of it actually becoming a possible avenue of recourse because it's the horse has bolted. Once you've released the confidential information, that protection has been lost to some extent and it's hard to quantify. It's very expensive to understand what was the value of that. Was it out there in the market already or, you know, all those sorts of things. So they are a good prompt to make sure people treat things seriously and sensibly. And we use them as a means to sort of say, to put people on notice that actually this is confidential and it encourages people to take the right steps and to be a bit more guarded about what they do. But in terms of actual saying, this is nailed on, I've got an NDA, I'm safe as houses, it's unlikely because you're just unlikely to sue under them. But they're definitely worth having. They don't have to be complicated. It can just be a page of, you know, relatively simple stuff just to say, I'm giving this information, you will protect it, you won't give it to anyone else, and that the people have signed it, and it just puts it in their mind that it's important. Nina, have you any views on from an investor side on NDAs to how, say, funders react to early-stage companies handing them an NDA and telling them to sign? I think an investor would be probably reluctant to sign an NDA, but confidentiality is one of the things that you do see in heads of terms. As we talked about uh, in one of our previous podcasts, the heads of terms will contain confidentiality provisions, but that's as much around the context of the transaction and the terms of the investment as it is around the business confidential information often. But certainly, I think investors like to see that something that the company is alive to. And for some intellectual property, confidentiality is really the only way that you can protect it. Not all intellectual property can be registered or can be protected any other way. So if your key intellectual property asset is one of those, then I think you will gain investor confidence if you can show that as a matter of course, you're asking the people you share information with to sign an NDA. Because you think about like a software startup, their primary asset, if they've actually got around to building an MVP or sort of an early stage product, is going to be the copyright in that product. But if they've just given it to everyone else all and sundry, or they've been talking to about it to all of the people within the community or within you know, anybody they come across, which often happens, you, know, it's, you want to promote and you want to share and you kind of want to be in that sort of sharing economy of people understanding each other's ideas and all that sort of stuff. But if I'm an investor coming in, I think actually there's no documents that sort of seem to support how this information has been shared. You've just been sort of flinging it around to everybody. Then I've got no confidence in the actual value of the asset that I'm actually investing in because software is very hard often to sort of show real copying. Things can just be re-expressed in different ways. And you can say, well, I didn't actually copy any of it. I'd just start with a blank sheet of paper. But because the nature of the way in which code is developed happened to be a similar sort of outcome, but... It's completely different development. So I think it it instills that confidence that it has been thought about properly. And again, also for the people you do share the information with, it instills that kind of expectation that if there were to be something that occurred, then you do have some right of recourse. Whether you act, act on that or not is different, but I think it just puts everyone kind of on notice. But there's also these other practical things, which in some senses are more important than having an NDA or as important as having NDAs. You know, make sure you've got restricted access to the information, even if within an organization, if you're working on something really secret, don't let all of the teams have access to all of it. Because again, you've got leakage and other people will run off with it. 
even in a development, a small company of five people, making sure you've got it in a central server that only maybe a founder or someone specific has access to or something like that. So again, the sort of leeching of information or of staff around with these companies can be quite frequent. You know, they fell out 30 days later, they're out. So, and what's been taken and what's been stripped out of that, you don't know. And as this sort of sharing information out to others, you know, don't give access to your product to third parties unless you're actually really clear about what they're going to do with it or get them to come into you and say, let me demo my product to you or let me show you how it's going to be built. But don't just say, here's a copy of it, go and have a look because you're just opening yourself up to do it. But the natural instinct often is about saying, please come and share. I really want to work with you and all that kind of stuff. And often it can be a bit inadvertently release a load of information that basically just kills the value in your business straight away. I think that's really important, you know, because often if clients come to us and say, oh, I want an NDA or I want an agreement in here to make sure that everything's kept confidential, or even you know, making sure that their employment agreements include those provisions, to have those practical steps whereby we're saying, well, actually, where are these ideas housed? Who has access to that in a very, you know, human level can be really powerful because you know you don't really want to be coming to a stage where you're holding on to your agreement and pointing at your confidentiality clause and hoping for the best that someone will be able to enforce that but also the person you're probably trying to enforce it against may not have any money to give you anyway you know in this in a small environment where you've got individuals working tractors or people working off their own bat or you know coding in their bedroom or whatever it is then even if you did try and force it and say actually you've lost me a million pounds then they're not going to be able to pay for it so and even if you if you lent it to a, a, another early stage company or you didn't have a contract for it, whatever that would be, if you pointed to it and said, we're going to sue you under this, again, they'd just fold, start up with a new company the next day. So I mean, it's, it's really hard to actually have any meaningful outcome for them either. But if I'm an investor, I want to see that kind of document. So it's just getting that balance right. It's just making sure you've got enough evidence, enough documentation that gives you credibility. But the reality is, you're not going to sue under these things. But if I'm an investor, I don't see any of this stuff. I immediately become concerned that it's not been thought about or protected or organized. And actually, that's what I'm investing in. The people, I'm investing in the technology that someone's created or the IP that they've generated often. And all the other infrastructure or the, you know, the, the staff or the premises or all those other th- extraneous things are all kind of ancillary to that. If, if it's a bit of a mess in terms of IP, if that's the kernel of the business, then... And we're immediately going to think, oh, it's not worth my while to get to those stages if I've got to be the one who sorts it out for them. And um, we've talked a lot about sort of internally what we do with our confidential information within the business. But if our IP is our asset, it's our service, it's the core of what we're going to be selling, obviously we are going to have to let our customers have some ability to use that IP in one way, shape, form or another. So obviously, following the advice that you've already given, you wouldn't tell them exactly how to do everything because then they could just go off and do it for themselves. But you are going to have to allow them some degree of flexibility to use your intellectual property. And I know the things we've talked about so far, you know, you've been very frank and you've said, you know, you don't always need a solicitor to draw up these documents. They can be very straightforward. You just need to write this, that and the other. When you're looking to license your intellectual property on to your customers, would you have the same view or, or does that take it to another level? I think it starts to take it to another level. Again, it depends on how broadly that, again, often sort of product stuff tends to be like an MVP or an early stage or a pilot or a smaller group of tested users or whatever that might be, or a, you know, a small short-term 
a discussion with a number of people, some testing, and you don't probably need to get it to that stage. But as you then put it out into the wild, it's definitely worth having terms, conditions that you can rely on. Um, partly again, because it puts people on notice. You may not ever be able to actually track someone down and sue them for it, but it just puts people on notice. It means that they have there is some legal recourse. You are creating some of that kind of legal relationship with your end user and with your customer. Again, in the consumer side, it's difficult because how you actually enforce those terms is all related to the Consumer Rights Act and other kind of consumer legislation. That means it's a bit harder to do it. But if it's B2B particularly, and making sure you've got those terms and conditions in place that mean if you did find out that that company has then started to replicate your website or take away your service or copy it or be mirroring it somewhere else, then actually do have some rights of recourse. And probably at that point, you might have more interest in actually pursuing it or at least sending them a nasty letter saying, you're in breach of your terms, we're going to turn you off. Often that's a good, powerful tool is that it gives you that right to say, you know, you've not paid me, you're trying to steal the stuff that you're... or you've taken our ideas and used it somewhere else or whatever that might be, or taken the text off our website and used it somewhere else. You can either send them a snotty letter, and that can often be from us or from yourself, but it's just making sure that there is some sort of record of that. But also you can say, well, you're not allowed to use our service anymore. You know, we're going to turn it off. So there's some other, it gives you those sort of package of rights that you can start to, to pull if they start to you know be silly with it. The danger often sometimes we find, and the reason why we suggest talking to lawyers or talking to people who understand these things is people go to other people's websites, get their terms, copy them off and start to tinker with them. And I've seen it recently a number of occasions where that's been the first kind of foray into having some terms and conditions, which is good because these says something, I mean, it could be IP infringement in itself. So, you know, maybe not something you should, I would advise you actually do. And as we saw the government got in trouble for doing it with the ferry contracts where they managed to take the, con- the terms from a takeaway or a delivery takeaway company, I think. So can go horribly wrong, but it's making sure that those terms are actually right for your particular service because having any terms is not appropriate necessarily because you need to understand what actually you're supplying and what you're delivering to people and how that relates to the legal contract that you're creating. And so, and I think people again assume that just going to lawyers is going to be really expensive and difficult and it's going to take ages. We try and make that as frictionless as possible. We try and make sure that it's as standardized as possible. We try and encourage people to describe their relationship with the customer through the website and through the user journey and the design and the UX of the, of the products. But if it's an online tool, rather than having to worry about too much about all the ins and outs of describing those in the terms, but having those kind of underlying terms is useful. It's not very expensive and actually you have create a template and you can use it as many times as you'd like. So again, smaller investments at the start can add value on the down the line. And again, if an investor looks at it or someone else who wants to come to join the company or whatever that might be, even a consumer or a customer would expect those terms to exist. And if you don't have them immediately, alarm bells sort of think, well, is this a credible business? Why have you not got a contract? Why have you not got any terms? Why... That seems odd. You should at least have something that describes our legal kind of relationship. Yeah, and I suppose we have seen a rise in a number of companies who have taken terms and conditions and have understandably tried to make them in much more sort of customer facing, more customer friendly by making them much more narrative and less uh, trying to move away from sort of legal jargon. I suppose there could be some risks around that, couldn't there, Dan, just in terms of you know updated legislation and things like that? Yeah, there can be. I mean, there's certain things you often need to include. And often by trying to, well, we found that actually trying to make them more plain language can be actually more difficult or more expensive or create more uncertainty than just often following the sort of standard way of, that people have got used to doing it. That being said, 
you can create, um, and we see it a lot in the financial services market, you can create a voice in your terms and a customer relationship and a customer engagement with how you communicate with those customers, even through the language you use within the contractual documents or whatever it is that you're selling. So it's, I wouldn't suggest that you can, that has to be all really you know, boring black letter, you know, Latin and stuff, because that's not how we operate anymore. And we want to try, when we, when we draft terms, we want to make sure that we are aligning it to the voice of the business. There's no point having really formalized, you know, formalized, old-fashioned herewiths, thereofs in sets of terms when actually the businesses are really fast-paced fintech or, you know, exciting new proposition to customers. Because again, that sort of value, that relationship won't work. People don't, wouldn't trust it. They'll think, well, that's weird. Why have why are they talking about it in this way over here? And actually, yet yeah, it's all whizzy and fancy graphics on the other side. So there's nothing stopping you from having those term conditions to express the voice of your business. It's just making sure that they are clear as possible. So again, by using natural language, often you can create uncertainty that has its own challenges. But it's just, again, thinking very clearly about what are we trying to do? What do we actually sell? And however you write that down, the law will support it often, but it's just making sure that you don't introduce more uncertainty by the fact it's, it's too vague. Dan, you've talked a bit about how we at TLT work with our clients when we're looking at these kind of things. What should our listeners be looking for in their lawyers when they do come to engage lawyers on, on these things that we've been talking about? I think it's getting the people who understand the nature of the business that you're actually running. So it's getting people to understand and we take time to understand what, if it's a technology, then what technology is it about? What does it actually do? How might it work? You know, spending a few hours, and we do it kind of free of charge, spend a few hours just sitting with the business, understanding and picking apart what actual business proposition they've got, what technology they're going to use and understanding it. So spending a bit of that time to do it. I'd also look for people who help to prioritize the important things again with the business. So it's making sure there's a tendency potentially if you don't understand necessarily the proposition or the particular business that you're trying to support or their technology or their solution or service, or whatever it is, that you would suggest oh, everyone must get a trademark or everyone must do this because that's on the standard list of things that SMEs should always have to have and you know, et cetera. But that's not true. And you don't have to do all those things from day one. So understand what the options are, create that list of priorities and what's important for the business at that particular time. And then, so we've done it together with a number of businesses, Nina, where we've kind of sat down with them and said, right, Tomorrow, I suggest you go and do this. And that could be register your company properly. It could be have a shareholders agreement, but it could also be do some searches on trademarks or it could be make an NDA, you know, cost you 500 quid. And that's an easy step to take. And maybe in six months time, look at other things that are more important, but, you know, prioritizing those easy wins and easy steps that are actually appropriate to the business you're doing rather than just kind of a blanket tick box. Oh yeah, we've got to do all these things because you're a startup and naturally you must inevitably need this stuff. So we've talked a lot about some of the pitfalls that businesses can avoid when scaling up. But if there is one key piece of advice or takeaway from today that you would offer listeners, what would that be, Dan? I think it would be to plan as early as you possibly can. And that doesn't necessarily mean some complicated, again, kind of legalized view about what planning is or what I need to know all the ins and outs of everything. It's just some really simple sitting down with a piece of paper and saying, okay, what IP or commercial arrangements am I going to create so what ip is my business going to create what's important to it what relationships have i got externally and how are they documented or how and i kind of do it in like a set of columns seeing what is the ip what is the relationship who's it with who's done it and then 
what am I going to do about it? Do I need to do with it now or do I need to do it later? And it's as simple as that often. And you can do that yourselves. It doesn't have to involve sets of lawyers. Again, we've got the experience of having done it before, so we can impart some of that. But it's just being really clear and not tripping yourself up later on when you realize that if only I'd have prioritized that particular thing at that time or thought about, oh, I've instructed someone to go and build me something and actually I don't own what they've created that can just cause problems later on. And it's as simple as that. So I think it's just being very clear in practical terms, thinking about your particular business, what is most important and what am I going to do to protect it? So I think that's, that's what I do. It's just early planning. And you can deal with all the other stuff later when you have the money or when you have the resource all the time. But having that plan and also keeping it living. Again, people sometimes do that at the start. You know, there might be an accelerator coaching program that sort of says, write your business plan or write your shareholders arrangements or whatever it is and all of this stuff applies in the same way having it written out and not just forgetting about it thinking okay well this week i'm gonna get someone else to build something else or i was talking to someone at a conference let's write their name down and let's work out whether i've given any information to them and should i've got them to sign an nda or that sort of stuff so again it's just keeping that kind of living track record of what you've been doing and you can then fix the holes if there are any later on but if you have no idea what you've done you've no idea who's built what or where they've come from, then everyone's going to get nervous about it. And actually, ultimately, you'll lose value in the, in the business. You've spent all that personal effort, time building. Thanks very much, Dan. That's, I think, some really helpful advice there, some key takeaways for our listeners to be able to prioritise what they do going forward. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Scale Up Insight podcast. If you have any questions about anything we discussed in the show, please get in touch at scaleupinsights at trtsolicitors.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave us a review on your podcast app. It means that more people can find us and take a listen. The information in this podcast is for general guidance and represents our understanding of the relevant law and practice at the time of recording. We recommend you seek advice in specific cases. Please visit our website for our full terms and conditions. <laughs>